You're listening to The Middle, the show about the Australia-China connection. We're bringing greater balance and broad expertise to all aspects of the Australia-China relationship. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Middle, the show about Australia's relationship with China, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and my co-host is Walling's son and our producer today is the wonderful Caitlin McHugh. Walling and I come to you from the University of Technology in Sydney. The Middle is inspired by the simple desire to shed more light than heat on Australia-China relations. To do that, every week we explore one aspect of the relationship with two subject area experts. And if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes in either English or Mandarin, please go to themiddleau.com. You can even see what we look like, if that takes your fancy. So, Wanning, perhaps you can tell us all about this week's topics and this week's guests. Yeah, sure, Peter. Um, you know, we today we're going to talk about uh, perceptions and uh, assumptions. Mm-hmm. Because uh, uh, we think this is actually quite important to the discussion of China-Australian relationship because much of the debate uh, currently about China's influence or China's rise and the Australian-China relationship hinges somewhat on our perceptions and assumptions about each other as countries and as people. So in other words, uh, perceptions are very important um, because they shape how communicators politicians, media and scholars talk to the public and how emotions and ideologies and the memories shape the perceptions. Yet we don't think um, much about this. We just take them for granted. So today we want to go behind these assumptions and perceptions and ask some deeper questions. And we trust this will, as you say, shed more light the heat on, on, on the topic. That's why we're here. Mm. Yeah. So today we have two very, very qualified China scholars to help us to get closer to the question. Professor Moa Bao Gao is a professor of Asian studies at University of Adelaide. Welcome, Moa Bao Gao. Thank you, my pleasure. And in the studio is Professor Injie Guo, and he is the chair of uh, uh, China studies at the Sydney University. Welcome, Injie. Thank you, Wanning. So, Moa Bao, we'll start with you. Recently, you published a book called Constructing China, Clashing Views of the People's Republic. Very interesting title. Um, So, Constructing China. So, it suggests to me, the title suggests to me, that there is actually a China out there, and it could be quite different from the China that is constructed. So, in what sense are you actually talking about constructing China? So, there is this object, China. But... There is no transcendental, unconstructed China to be discovered, reported, or discussed. Mm-hmm. Because, in my view, once you start to report, to discuss about China, you're already constructing it. Mm-hmm. So when one talks about a Chinese personality like Mao or Deng, or now Xi Jinping, or an event like the cultural revolution or the great leap forward, one takes position, either political position, geopolitical position, or ideological position. So you have to take a position, you have to take a perspective, without which you don't know how, where to start. So once you take a position about, adopt a perspective, you are constructing. This is the case of Western academics, Western media, as well as the Chinese. Now, what determines or what influences one's position, one's perspective? 
In my book, I talk about three main factors. One is national interest. One is conceptualization of human existence, including what is right and what is wrong. Finally, it is class interest. For instance, many political, many Chinese political and intellectual elite would construct Mao, the great leap forward and cultural revolution, as the Western elite because they share the same class interest. Class interest is transnational. So it sounds like that、uh, the second one is a moral one, the third one is a social class one, right? Yes. Okay. Now let's move on to Professor Guo. Professor Guo, you are the leading expert on Chinese nationalism, and I know that your specific interest is cultural nationalism and its relationship with the China's state nationalism. Nationalism in the Chinese context often implies a position of the self in relation to a national other. If you like, is that right? Yes. If that's the case, as Mao Zedong famously said, "Who is our enemy and who is our friend?" This is a question of utmost importance. So, following on from that, can the West ever be a friend to China?、Uh, yes and no.、It、depends on perceptions, as we say. Nationalism is one of the most abused words in the social sciences and the humanities, not just in English but also in Chinese and other. Languages too.、Uh, when people talk about very very different things,、um, they they pretend they are talking about the same thing. That that is a huge problem. So, just so that we are on the same page,、uh, what I mean by nationalism is actually simple. It's an ideological movement which seeks to retain and maintain three things. National autonomy, national unity, and national identity.、Uh, the distinction between self and other, as you mentioned, Wanying, is mainly concerned about identity, national identity.、Mm-hmm. So it's really useful to talk about how China sees the West or some others.、Mm-hmm. And my, the point I want to make is that how China sees the West. Or any other Western others is conditioned in a large, in a large degree by how it sees itself、mm-hmm. and how foreign others see China. So that's the broad context.、Mm-hmm. Nationalism is a very good perspective from which to look at perceptions. Just on that point, are we?、Uh, is it unrealistic then to think that there is a consensus view? On either side of this debate, is it possible to have a consensus view from the West of China and China of the West, or is everything as as Professor Gao says, essentially we construct everything and that changes as well? Well, that's absolutely right. Which is why we need to to be clear、uh, when we use shorthands such as China or, or or the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, because these are not. Uniform or unified subjects or objects. We need to be clear what we mean by China. Quite often, when we use that word, we use this as a shorthand. And within China, there is, you know, there is a lot of contestation over what Chineseness actually is.、Mm. And then outside China, perceptions are so different; it's very difficult to guide the consensus. But roughly, well, something is merging. And it's very much approaching a consensus in China how we want to be seen.
Historically, that perception changes, as you said, Peter, very good point. And outside China, that is changing too. We need to put the perceptions in a historical, in a vertical historical context as well. The, the conception with China that is emerging is that um, to put to talk about this in abstract terms is, is difficult. Uh, perhaps what I can try to do is to um, personalize this and use personal language, uh, the language that people here in Australia talk so that audiences will know, have a better idea what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I see is a twin paradox at work in terms of the generation of perceptions. In China, for example, the Chinese government is values mutual respect in international relations. So it wouldn't, it's very reluctant to criticize other governments. In Australia, it's different. Well, we know that what the U.S. government is like is not reluctant at all to criticize other governments. And yet, on the individual level in Australia, we're very reluctant to criticize other individuals. Mm, that's interesting. So we would say, oh, that's a beautiful dress. That's nice and lovely. Uh, you never say it's a horrible dress. No, no, no. You don't want to say a horrible dress. Yeah. Even when you want to criticize somebody or something, you would preface that by saying, I don't I like so-and-so. I don't. I, but, yeah, yeah. but. but but, yeah, yeah, there, he's a friend of mine. But. He's a friend, but yes, there's, right, there's a right. but. And in China, on the individual level, people are not reluctant to criticize each other at all. So you have that Understood. twin paradox at work. Okay, interesting. Well, I, I'm going to bring Professor Gao into this one. Uh, and again, talking, going back to this word construction or constructing, uh, much of the debate about China in this country at the moment is produced or constructed, if you like, through the media. So a question for you first, and then we'll go to our guest in the studio, uh, is in your view, does the media largely contribute to this knowledge or does it also challenge it? So is this media construction of China too simplistic or is it just in a sense a product of the shifting kind of perceptions? What do you think, Professor Gell? Media certainly contributes to the knowledge of China because in my interpretation, the, the knowledge is it's not bad or, or, or good. It's just uh, constructed. Um, the Australian media is an interesting study of this complex relationship between class interest, national interest, and transnational interest. AB, the ABC, for instance, is constantly bashed by the right wing of class interest for being biased towards the left, and they're accused of being the lefty. So many in Australia hate a Murdoch media empire, which clearly represents the class interests of the of ruling elite, which is also transnational. Hence, the line between national and transnational of the media empire is blurred. But the BBC and the Murdoch media and the former Fairfax media all had Australian national interests in, in common regarding China. Thus, the ABC could produce a four-corner program, like the one on China, which, in my view, damages his own reputation. Because it was now, biased? Well, because it was, it was not only biased, it was just uh, uh, lots of uh, the so-called um, uh, factual reporting is insinuation and uh, speculation. There's no evidence. So this recent article, for instance, titled China's Confucians to have uh, spy agencies and the government increasing... Alarmed is another example. It's all speculation and insinuation. The article cites the U.S. Senate Subcommittee investigation 
you know, the activities of Confucius Institute on U- U.S. campuses. But the article selects to not to mention the February ni- uh, 2019 U.S. GAO report. It's the United States Government Accounting Office on the, on the CI, which concludes that there's no conclusive evidence of CI influencing or limiting academic freedom, let alone spying. So this is actually uh, uh, really reflects what I was trying to say in my book. Mm-hmm. And now, once you take a position, you tend to select evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, you select the one that supports your, your, your position and, and uh, select to ignore the ones that, that doesn't support your that don't support your position. So, so to you, and you, is that a? How do you change that? I mean, uh, look, let's let's be quite clear about this. Journalists do, as you as you say, Professor, select evidence to support their position. But of course, the so the question then is how do they go about selecting their position? Uh, Indu, have you got a thought about that? Yes, I do. I think well, it I it boils down to national identity. Mm. who you think you are and how you are related to others. And that doesn't change very easily. So many people would say uh, knowledge will change things. Yes and no. Uh, knowledge can make it even worse. The more you know somebody, the more probably, more obnoxious you will find that person. It's possible. <laughs> it's, not, it's not inevitable, but it's possible. Knowledge might help. I'm not, I'm not sure. It's actually, I agree with Mobile on this, that is, People take a position. How to change that position is actually dictated by who you think you are as a national or ethnic group. Morning, what do you think? What have you got for the panel here? Both, since both of them are China scholars, mm. I would like to ask a question about uh, the relationship between um, China expertise and not knowledge production about China. Mm. So, um, India, you first. Um, China studies is an area of a scholarly expertise, you know, and journalists, on the other hand, um, move from topic to topic quite quickly. So they need to routinely uh, draw on the views of China ex-scholars. But so, in your view, do you think there has been a good synergy between the two? That is, media and the China studies experts. Yes, I do. I look at this um, Australian academia and the Australian mediascape as one discursive field. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of interaction going on. So, it the question is this: Who generates a view mm. that says? Something is good or something is bad. Mm. Once you get an idea moves into position of hegemony, mm-hmm. it's, it dominates, it prevails. And you have different views, but this are, these different views are very much marginalized. Mm. You can, it will be good you can, if you can, they are heard, but quite often they are not heard. Well, if they are heard, they can be ignored, they are not counted. Anyway, they won't make their way into the, our Prime Minister's office. Mubagal, your, your view on this? Yes, certainly there is. Um, the, the, although the academics uh, tend to have more in-depth studies or long-term studies because they have the time to, to think about it, to research with the media people, the journalists, usually they are constrained by the time and, and, and also the agenda. So the, the journalists might appear to be more superficial and more sensationalist. But in general terms, regarding China, they, they are more or less the same, constructing China 
in what they see as Australia's national interest. Can I, can I shift a bit and stay with you, Professor? Um, and I may be wrong in this, but please correct me if I'm wrong, because it is just a perception of mine. But I suspect there is a perception in the West that China, in fact, sees itself as quietly superior to the West. I mean, I don't know whether you agree with that, but I'm, and do you think that's right? I think I think it's the opposite. I think China and the Chinese, at least for hundreds of years, for hundred years since the Opium War, yep. have a, have a, a, a in, what I call the inferiority complex. So they actually look up to the West, and they think they're inferior. They think the culture is inferior, and they used to think the language is inferior. They don't have science and technology. They don't have uh, freedom. They don't have democracy, and they uh, their culture is feudalistic. It's backwards. And uh, although briefly during the year of Mao, they had some confidence. They thought they had to find a way to build up China in a different way from the West. And then, of course, because of the backlash against the Mao and the Cultural Revolution, and the Chinese didn't like that either. So Chinese uh, are critical of the traditional Chinese past, also the revolutionary Chinese past. So they... Uh, in, in, in the ways that they might behave arrogant to the West, but that's because they are not confident, they're not secure. Well, that's very interesting. I'd like to hear, Professor Guo, you uh, agree with uh, Mopagao's assessment. I absolutely agree with Mobile on this, although I would, I would go a bit further. The inferiority complex has been around for a long, long time. Mm. And... We all know that China had nearly a century of anti-traditionalism. Certainly between 1919, that's the end of the First World War and the start of the May 4th New Culture Movement, and 1949. And then again between 1978 and 1989. Anti-traditionalism prevailed uh, for, for nearly a century. The reason for that is actually... China's political and intellectual elites held tradition or cultural Chineseness responsible for China's weakness and backwardness Absolutely. and China's century of humiliation at the hands of Western powers. So the conclusion was actually inevitable. That was, in order for China to strengthen itself, to modernize and become an equal member of the international community, what do you do? You modernize, but you can't modernize until, unless you get rid of your Chineseness. And that was the logic. So for a long, long time, China had really a very inferior complex. That was obvious. Is this changing though under President Xi? It's changing. It's changing. It was, I want to add, there was a bit of ambivalence to that. It, as, as Mobo said, China, because of that, looked up to the West. The West was a teacher. It was a source of in- inspiration. Not only the West, but also Japan. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And even today, intellectuals are still saying, ah, oh, unfortunately, the relationship between the teacher and the student is that the pupil, the student is pious and is very, very keen to learn. But the teacher wants to bully the student. <laughs> so what do you do? That is that sort of ambivalence. Yeah. Under President Xi Jinping, many things have changed. Mm. Now, because of China's rise and because of China's 
economic miracle. There is no reason anymore for Chinese in general to look for the reasons of its backwardness mm -hmm. and weakness. In fact, the, the opposite is true. Well, people are now saying, well, since China's economy has done so well, after all, we are the second largest economy in the world, yep. and China has risen, you can't blame Chinese culture or the Chinese civilization for our success. If anything, there <laughs> must be in our civilization, in our cultural tradition, that has actually helped us get here. Right. Therefore, there is an agenda in China to, to, to respect traditional culture, Confucianism, and so on and yeah. so forth. Okay. Yeah. Now, both of you, I would like you to say in very, very briefly uh, to the question that is, how does the image of the West change over time in the public Im imagination? Say, in the socialist era, to the economic um, uh, reform era, to the current era of China's rise. How, how is the West imagined? This has something to do with, I, with what I said about the conceptualization of human existence including what is right, what is wrong. In the 16th, 17th, 18th, even late uh, 19th, even early 20th century, the Western conceptualization of, of, the, of human, human existence is very much influenced by social Darwinism. So according to that conceptualism, and, and China is sort of, if not down at the bottom of the hierarchy of human beings, is at the most in the middle inferior race, inferior culture. So that image, that image, of course, uh, is very, very much reflected in, uh, I mean, I think Colin Materis uh, wrote a book, West Images of China, uh, the yellow peril and the, the white Australian policy and so on and so forth. And the white Australian policy was supported uh, by, by both the Labour Party and, and the Liberal Party and by the general public as a whole. So that image of the Chinese uh, uh, changed uh, after the Second World War, when the Cold War started. The Cold War started, uh, the uh, Chinese was considered, uh, considered to be communists. Again, this conceptualization, or you can say it's ideology, but I think it's conceptualization of human existence, the, the, that, that the communists are evil and, the, uh, the, the, you know, they are wrong uh, on the wrong side of history. We have to fight against it, and therefore the imagery is the red under the bed. Uh, and so, so this change, as you can see, has something to do with with how you perceive the world to be like. What's right? What's wrong? So actually, Mo Bogo has answered a different question to the uh, different answer to the question I was asking, which was which is excellent. It was a uh, 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 brilliance by um, coincidence because I was asking a question about image of the West held by the Chinese. So maybe in Jiegu, you can come in and answer that question. Yeah, I think it was for a long, long time, there's this yearning for Western recognition. Uh -huh. And that is still there. Peter raised a very important question, that is whether there is a superiority complex now in China emerging. I'm not going to avoid that question. There is among some segments of society. But to me, that is not well-founded. It is almost like the Napoleon syndrome. <laughs> you are short, but you don't want to be seen to be to be inferior. So you're trying to overcompensate. Mm -hmm. You say, mm -hmm. oh, actually, I'm better than you. So yes. that's, it. there's an element of, of, of that. 
But yeah, images have changed, but the sentiments haven't changed much. If I can read you up, interested in your thoughts about this. A recent story in the Sydney Morning Herald said that Chinese tourists love to visit Australia, but complain that its Wi-Fi and its railway system is too backward. So it's a reversal of the West as a technologically advanced. So what would the to you both maybe, uh, Professor Gal first? What, what would the ordinary people in China, ordinary folks in China, think about Australia compared, say, with the United States, or do they lump us all together? Well, that's interesting, because I think the Chinese are, do, I mean, used to, and are still, I think they still do, are like Australia. It's a good place to visit, good place to live, good place to study. Uh, and a blue sky, beautiful beaches, mm. and fresh fru- uh, food and uh, fruit and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Great radio shows. Certainly, some of the Chinese, at least, uh, feel betrayed. Like the, I know uh, uh, the co- my colleagues, you know, China has the greatest, most number of uh, uh, centers of Australian studies in the world. Mm. And these, these, these scholars at the various universities love Australia, and they translate Australian literature and all kinds of things into Chinese. And, and the recent uh, dispute or recent uh, uh, media and uh, consensus uh, uh, what, what, in what they consider as bashing China uh, make them feel betrayed because they love Australia and they want to do things to improve the relationship between two countries. Mm. And they think it's hard. It's, it's, it's futile. It's very difficult to do. Mm. Um, but I still think at the bottom, they still like to come to live here. And if they could, they would like to migrate here. Despite the Wi-Fi and the backward trains. Despite the Wi-Fi and the backward trains. <laughs> I think they're hoping that China will help Australia to build a fast train. Yes, I love the Belt and Road. What do you think, Inji? Well, it's not surprising that many Chinese find Sydney backward. <laughs> Because what, in for a long, long time, this is another thing that China learned uh, from from the West. That is very much the inter- in, Enlightenment idea of progress. Ooh. So everything was put on a scale of advanced and backward. Uh, when I ask Chinese tourists and visiting scholars, what do you mean by backward? Oh, they mention the Wi-Fi, but they also mention buildings. And look at the buildings in Sydney. They're, most of them are old. And I said, well, old buildings are fine. We love old buildings here. Most people like old buildings. But that, on, that, on that scale of advanced and backward, old buildings are backward. They have to be taller, higher. Mm-hmm. They have to be newer. More shiny. More shiny. And that's, it's a, it's a very different scale of things. Yeah, that opera house is too small, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's yeah. A t- <laughs> yeah, really, and that bridge yeah, could be twice as long. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I well, agree. They, I mean, they're, they're called Adelaide Village. Well, uh, actually, they call Melbourne uh, Mochun, which is Melbourne Village, and they call Canberra Canton, uh, which is Canberra Village. The only place that I haven't heard them describe in, in rural terms is Sydney. Yeah, Adelaide is a village, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, keep going. Sorry. But the most puzzling uh, question among a lot of Chinese is this. They say, okay, we send, well, you, your economy and ours are tied to each other, mm-hmm. right? We, it's, it's mutually beneficial. We both benefit from, from that, um, right? We send you a lot of tourists and a lot of students. You should be uh, thanking at sport, mm. but we don't understand why the Australian governments, the media, always, always abuse China. 
And that's something they ask me all the time. The way I explain to them is that uh, it's not everybody. By Australia, you got to see some in the media, some in government, some in society, probably they are not happy. But that's not everybody. Don't get the impression that that's everybody. That's one, too. The cost and benefit of receiving Chinese tourists and students are not evenly distributed. Mm. For example, you have tourists, the tourist shops will be happy, right? But a lot of tourists go to Sydney University and they make a lot of noise and they, w- they wonder, even when we are having exams, well, so we bear the cost, but we don't get any benefit. Mm. So are we going to be happy? Probably not, right? Mm. And that's just an example to show. Um, it takes a lot of explaining uh, and Mm. Lucky they have me as a as a well, free ambassador for Australia, and sometimes here uh, I've considered myself a free am- ambassador of China too. It takes that kind of explaining and building of bridges explanation to improve understanding. I think India, you've actually uh, answered the question that I was about to uh, ask, uh, which is uh, how do the Chinese people make sense of the uh, China debate in Australia? But uh, Mobagao, what do you say to that question? Uh, they are baffled. They are baffled. They are puzzled. They, they can't understand why Australia, from their point of view, should be so uh, not just in, in, in some in some cases Australia does not only follow the United States. They 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 are actually marching ahead step of the United States, mm-hmm. like bending Huawei, for instance. Mm. They think mm. uh, uh, this is what I get from social media. That's that's what they feel about it. So, so, so they don't understand why. Well, that's why we have a show called The Middle, to help them understand why. And that's why we have up to now we've been translating the show into Mandarin. I hope we can help them and help us. That is all we have time for this week on The Middle. You can find previous episodes, as I mentioned, uh, online at themiddleau.com and subscribe to us, whatever podcast app you might use. And until next week, it's goodbye from me, Peter Frey. And goodbye from me, Wan Ying Sang. And thank you both to our guests.